0: Welcome once again to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the very best internet radio show about Marvel's man without fear, hosted by a guy named Dave. I am Dave, otherwise known as J. David Weeder, the guy who reads Daredevil comics, ponders them, pontificates them, then brings all of those thoughts to the digital airwaves of the interwebs. And I am back after two weeks and ready to go, feeling much, much better after a bout of luckily mild strep throat, as mild as strep throat can be. I want to send a big thank you to W. Blaine Dowler once again for filling in and doing a pair of very awesome episodes. Now, if you're joining the show for the first time, we are coming to the end of a kind of a little stretch in the Frank Miller Daredevil comic read-through. Now, I never gave the, the whole reading project a title, but it is what it is. At this stage, we come to the point where Roger McKenzie pretty much exits the book, and the next issue, Miller takes over as the primary creative force. Most of the reasons for the move seem to be, this is all hearsay, that Miller was frustrated with McKenzie's take on the book and pushed for more and more control. Again, it's all hearsay, but it does seem to fit with Miller going from artist to co-plotter to full writer-artist status. Either way, we have covered some interesting ground with these stories, and this issue is no different as a guest writer steps in to tell a tale that is wholly unexpected, Now, if you were listening about three weeks ago, and why wouldn't you, I mentioned that The Punisher was set to appear in issue 167, which we're covering today. But he doesn't. The reason is simple. The story involved drugs and kids and kids on drugs, and it just couldn't pass the comics code. Too edgy. And the issue was far along in the process, judging by the fact that a cover existed already for it, and one that appears in the Omnibus as a bonus. The cover shows a young girl in the forefront playing with what looks to be sand, as Daredevil and the Punisher fight in the background and there's some murk. In the sand is written the words Child's Play. It may not be sand, if you know what I mean. Now, the image isn't just pencils. I mean, it's at the inking stage and the trade dress. So it's, you know, out beyond the colors, it's basically complete. And this is a story that gets revisited down the road. So we are coming back to this, which says to me that the script was complete. Maybe pencils and inks were complete and the rug got yanked out from under the issue. So that means that something had to go in its place. An issue had to come out, and David Michelini was brought in to do a fill-in. And that fill-in is what we will be looking at when we come back from this podcast promo break. So promo, and then Daredevil 167. Why do you think superheroes are so important
1: people need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them something to aim for somebody to try to be like
2: one is the man of tomorrow with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men the other the Cape Crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast.
1: To the Batmobile, let's go.
2: Up, up,
1: and away. Atomic Ma-
2: Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com.
0: Picture it. August 1980. The Empire Strikes Back is still in theaters, and you have just left the mall's theater reeling from that cliffhanger ending, even though you've seen it a few times since it came out in May. You stop by the video arcade to play some Pac-Man, maybe a little bit of Defender or Lunar Lander. Then it's off to the comic shop, where you see the November issue of comics, which are on stands at this point. Marvel seems odd. Some kid named Kitty Pride is joining the X-Men, Jarvis seems to be defending the Avengers with a vacuum cleaner, but what is this? There is a cover that stands out. It has a blue border with computerized code, and in the center of that border is an all-red image of Daredevil's face, as if it's on a computer display. And two mechanical hands are clutching Daredevil's throat with a computerized target on Daredevil and the command, laser armed, fire. Well, that decision just got made easy. Daredevil number 167 it is. The cover is simple, yet really, really effective. It would have certainly stood out on the racks, especially in the rise of video games and Tron. Arcades were popping up, some home consoles were becoming a thing, so playing the new digital crowd was kind of a smart move here. Of course, it's probably accidental. The cover's simplicity spells out how quickly this had to be made. The issue was up against a tight deadline, and the fact that Miller had already done one cover means this one had to be moved out the door pretty quickly. But you know what? It works really well. I've seen rushed work before. This isn't the kind of unrefined work we've seen. In fact, if we didn't know the story behind the issue, there's nothing to indicate a quickie cover. I think having a prolific inker in Bob McLeod helped with the refined look. And the colors being one-toned are nice, but they actually work for the cover. Now, the story inside this issue is The Mauler. It was written by David Michelini and penciled by Frank Miller. Our normal crew of Klaus Jansen, Joseph Rosen, and Glynis Ween return, but Roger McKenzie is noticeably absent. He will briefly return, but in a rather odd way and down the line. But we open with Matt and Heather attending a cocktail party and an upscale country club thrown by one Edwin Cord. Cord is offering Matt a job with his company, Cord Conglomerate, which has some perks that the IRS doesn't need to know about. Wink wink, nudge nudge. Matt gets offended and tells Heather that they are leaving. They are leaving, but is stopped when an, an armored attacker swoops into the scene and starts shooting the place up left and right. His primary target? Edwin Cord. Matt slips into a nearby cabana where a girl is changing and tells her he needs to change, and he promises not to look at her undressed form. You get it? Wink. Moments later, he swoops in on the armored shooter as Daredevil, who is wearing something that Cord identifies as the Mauler armor. Daredevil puts up a decent fight despite the mauler's weapons, including an electroshock device that feels like it is peeling back Daredevil's skin layer by layer. But the mauler takes off when the police arrive and Daredevil vanishes before the questions can begin. Matt and Heather watch as the police are shut down on questioning Cord thanks to his high level of security clearance, which is apparently off the charts. So this part ends and Matt can't help but feel that something smells rotten at Cord Conglomerate. So, let's take a moment to talk about the issue so far. Michelini knows how to set a tale properly, especially at a party. He did write Iron Man, and was the one who really made Tony struggle with the bottle. I mention that not just as a background, but also to say that this opening scene feels a lot like an Iron Man comic. We have the rich, shady businessman hiding things from the IRS, an upper-crust party, plus a technologically-based villain. In fact, Iron Man actually had an encounter with a man named Drexel who headed up Cord Industries. I mean, Iron Man dated Kord's daughter, Janice, for a while before she kind of died. Now, there are no references to the Elder Kord or any indicators that Edwin and the Kord conglomerate are tied into the original company, nor are there any ties to Ted Kord and Cord Industries on the DC side. It's spelled differently. But the name and the concept immediately make me think that this script was originally set for an Iron Man story. And that would make a lot of sense. Michelini was writing Shellhead's book at the exact same time. So picture this, Jim Shooter puts out the call that a script is needed to replace the Punisher story slated for issue 167, and in a pinch, Michelini rewrites an Iron Man script. Now comment more on that as we get deeper into the story itself, which is a brisk story, so prepare for a little bit of brevity. But the opening feels a bit out of place for Matt, at least at first. Now granted, I can see him hobnobbing at fundraisers with other lawyer types, but poolside at a country club feels a little, little off. Sure, with Heather on his arm, it makes sense just not at first glance. And we immediately know that something is up when the panels are from the point of view of the Mauler, or, at that point, the unidentified computerized enemy. The words, Destruction of Edwin Cord imminent" don't bury the lead. Except they kind of do, but you'll see what I mean a bit later. Once again, Miller uses a two-page splash to ratchet up the action as the mauler attacks the party. And once again, Heather is... well, she's being Heather. It's no surprise that Edwin Cord is a bit of a scumbag, nor that Matt is offended by the job offer with potentially illegal perks. He's a lawyer, that's what he does. But when he goes to tell Heather that they're leaving, she is talking to three rather buff guys in Speedos. Yeah, shocker, I know. Of all the people at the party, she beelines it for the muscled men slathered in tanning oil. And she threatens to throw a fit when Matt says that they are about to get out of there. And she suddenly changes her tune when the mauler sweeps in, shooting lasers telling Cord to jump because he'll never escape the wrath of the mauler. That tends to get her attention. And it's odd that the muscled men are nowhere to be seen as Heather is grabbing Matt for protection. I'm just saying. The scene escalates predictably, with Matt rushing to change into Daredevil, leading to the almost funny joke about how he promises not to look at the half-dressed girl. And the action goes about on par with what you would expect. Matt is a bit outclassed, but holds his own. And this is not meant to be the featured fight. It's just a warm-up. It's just to show the threat of the mauler. Or the perceived threat. Now, the mauler's design is kind of... Well, it's boring. It's plain, it's two-tone blue suit with normal gauntlets on the arms and rockets on the ankles we've seen it before. However, the helmet actually stands out a bit. It's domed kind of like an astronaut suit, and the wearer's face is obstructed so it appears as kind of fuzzy, almost digital-looking mess, which of course lends a bit of mystery to who is attacking within the armor. And the plot continues to become intriguing as Cord is revealed to have some super high security clearance from what agency or agencies we are not told. So, so far, good beginning, but feeling a lot more like an Iron Man story rather than a Daredevil story, which is about to change. So let's take a look at the next leg of the issue to find out how. Edwin Cord returns to his heavily guarded Long Island estate to find that Daredevil has somehow ended up in his office completely undetected by the huge security team outside. Hornhead is casually eating a pear and demands some answers to who or what the Mauler is. Cord relents and explains that the Mauler, or Mobile Armored Utility Emitter Revised, was stolen by one Aaron Soames, a disgruntled employee who was fired. Even as Cord insists that Soames is trying to get revenge on the company, Daredevil senses that the man isn't telling the whole truth. Daredevil leaves Cord in the dark, literally, and heads back to the storefront law firm to think things over and try to process this. Later, Daredevil pays a late night visit to the headquarters of Cord Conglomerate, where Cord himself is working late. Daredevil figures that if he can find out that Edwin is working late, Soames can too, which makes it prime time for attacking Cord. You see the logic there. And Daredevil is proven right, as the Mauler is already inside the building, leading to another showdown. In the fight, the visor of the armor is broken, revealing a voice belonging to a face much older than Daredevil expected. This is Aaron Soames, a much older man, and he explains that he worked for Kord for 30 Five years before his position was replaced with a computer. That same computer wiped out all of his records, which means that he received no pension and really the courts are not willing to work with him. So Cord himself laughed at the scenario when Soames brought it to him. So now Soames is here to settle the score. But the conversation comes to a halt when both Daredevil and Soames find themselves surrounded by Cord's private army. Now, let me stop for a moment. How cool is it that Daredevil is just casually sitting in the office waiting for Cord? Sure, it's a fortified estate with many alarms, armed guards, so on and so forth, but Daredevil's just kicked back, eating a pear. That is the definition of cool. Now, that has to unsettle Cord a bit. It would me if somebody was in my locked house, which does not have a vast array of alarms and guards. Now, we, the reader, aren't made privy to exactly how Daredevil made his way this deeply into the sanctum or out of it. Which makes it even more impressive. It lets our imaginations do the work, which is often a lot more fun. And I will admit that this is where the story does become a bit more Daredevil unless Iron Man we kind of shift gears. Because we do have a very ninja like break into Cord's office and a good verbal sparring match, and here is a nice kicker Daredevil knows that Cord isn't being fully transparent, and we know this because of his built in lie detector. But there's no dialogue telling us this. There's no thought balloons. Michelini trusts his readers to put the pieces together, but it doesn't leave new readers out in the cold because it can be read as just, well, this guy's a swarmy businessman. And Daredevil uses some instincts to figure out the likely location for the mauler to strike next. And it's nice to know that there was some detective work. Unfortunately, it happened off panel to the point that it's more implied than anything. And it's kind of lucky for Cord that Daredevil was right and doing the right thing. See, here it would be easy to just justify cutting ties with Kord's situation and walking away. Whatever happens, happens. It's none of my affair. That's not an incorrect statement. And it's kind of a true bit of accidental irony. Had Daredevil not done that, had he not been at Kord's that night, the outcome of this issue would have been drastically different. At least potentially. But I'm getting ahead of myself just a bit. Daredevil decides that Kord needs to be protected. That he can't, with his army and sophisticated weapons, defend himself. Again, in a nice piece of trusting the reader, Michelini sets up the believable idea that this weapons manufacturer may really need Daredevil's help. By showing that Daredevil is able to slip into Cord's compound effortlessly, I might add, it does show a vulnerability. I talked a while back about how comics have two options versus prose that has one. In comics, we can be shown or told. Michelini has shown us a plausible need for Daredevil to look out for this guy as well as a reason that Daredevil should be weary of him. Whether this was a plot originally conceived for Daredevil or for Iron Man, it's a compelling one and well-built, and the best has not yet happened. The issue's not weighed down with a lot of explanations which allows it to move briskly. We're into the story. We're moving along with it. In fact, the only time it slows down is long enough for Soames to tell his tale of heartbreak. And you know what? His tale is a compelling one. Soames was victim of age and the advent of technology, which are still themes in the workplace today. Add to that the idea of a botched retirement and a man left with absolutely nothing, and Aaron Soames becomes a villain that you kind of want to see succeed. I mean, here we have Soames, who's sympathetic, and Cord, who's a douche, but you really want a douche to get theirs. I'm sure there's a pun there, but I didn't go for it. But while Summer's Eve, Cord is cornered, it only takes a moment for the private army to come charging in. And now, gets real. The mauler shoots out the lights in the room, plunging the soldiers Daredevil and Cord into darkness. And of course, this hardly deters Daredevil. It's kind of his thing, and it allows Cord and the Mauler to slip away while Daredevil is distracted. The man without fear is able to break away and pursue them and finds that Mauler has Cord dead to rights. Daredevil is about to throw a club at the Mauler, but hesitates. And he watches as Soames pulls out Cord's wallet with his ID, his credit cards, and then disintegrates all of them. And then, well, that's it. Soames is done. He's satisfied with taking away Cord's life and erasing it like the computer erased his work history. It's poetic justice. But a pair of guards enter with a huge rolling cannon and take aim at the mauler. Daredevil tries to stop the guards from firing by throwing his billy club, but the cannon goes off, hitting Soames square in the chest, and Soames falls down dead. And Daredevil walks up to Cord, who says that revealing this incident is a threat to national security, I was just following the law. And Cord asks Daredevil if he understands the law, if he respects it. And Daredevil says that he does but he punches cord in the face anyway and walks out of the building. A few days later, Aaron Soames is laid to rest at a sparsely attended funeral, but a figure stands off to the side, and when the others leave, Daredevil lays flowers at the headstone that Matt Murdock donated. Silently, Daredevil walks away as we see that the tombstone reads, He was, and that is enough. And the story ends with that sad final panel. Wow. Wow. You know, the action moves pretty quickly in the last leg of the story, but it all comes down to the heartbreaking moment. Soames has taken what he considers to be revenge, and it's done. He's walking away. Whatever happens, happens. It's been a theme. Then comes the canon, but here is what I alluded to earlier. Here's my conflict. Had Daredevil walked away and not pursued the Mauler and cord, would Soames have been able to walk out of this alive? When Daredevil happened on the scene of the Mauler and Cord, it looked pretty cut and dry. That Cord was a goner. Or at least his wallet would have been, as we found out. But they fight for a few minutes, and Soames tells his story, and that's when the guards show up. That's when it happens. And that's how this story is brought to a climax that tugs at the heartstrings. Not only do we learn that Soames still has his integrity, even when pushed to the brink, but we have these private soldiers, and I assume they're private, there is an off chance that they are actual military assigned to guard the facility. I mean, there are military projects being worked on there. But either way, they take aim with this cannon, not realizing that Soames is mostly harmless. I don't put any blame on the soldiers. They're reacting to an intruder in a powerful piece of stolen hardware. Actually, I kind of blame Matt. See, there's something that happens, or maybe happens, it's ambiguous, and here's my conflict. Not only did Matt's presence delay Soames which would have taken a uh, simple form of revenge and been done. But here, my opinion on exactly what is occurring changes with each read. I mean, it has me right on the fence, and it bothers me. So soldiers are, are aiming at Soames. Soames is done, and Matt throws the billy club. The billy club banks off the wall. It hits both of the soldiers, one by one. Here's where it gets sticky. When it hits the second guard, the man falls down, and it looks like the soldier pulls down the firing lever as he falls. I did the comparison. I took the tablet on my Marvel Digital Unlimited and put it alongside my omnibus just to make sure that I was seeing what I was seeing. Sure enough, billy club, man goes down, man yanks lever as he falls. Now, it can be said that the man was already yanking the lever. This is the other side of the coin and Daredevil was just simply too late to stop it. And maybe it was inevitable and the act of throwing the billy club was just futile. But man, that shot makes me think and I can't get it out of my mind. So had Matt not shown up, Soames would have done his deed and maybe been out of there. Timing was the issue. Or, you know, I think, honestly, this was a losing game from the get-go. Let's be honest. Soames and the armor were a strong match, and Cord was damn near untouchable. It's possible nothing Matt was going to do would change this outcome. Maybe Soames was even counting on not walking away. It would make sense. He has nothing left, no pension, no job, an uncertain future. It could be suicide by cop. The thing that gets to me is that this was a lesson of sorts for Matt, that he can fail and he can fail big. Whether it was not throwing the club in time or inadvertently causing the cannon to fire, Daredevil loses. He doesn't stop the mauler. Had Soames had intentions to kill Cord, there was no stopping him. He doesn't help Soames get his pension back. In fact, he doesn't save Soames' life. And he can't even touch the real bad guy, which of course is going to become a theme. His cord walks away with nothing more than a broken nose that plastic surgery can solve and he can afford it. This is an absolute wash and it clearly affects Matt. Sure, we get a little bit of satisfaction of Matt belting cord, but still the douchebag will be free to ruin others. Do you think Soames was the only one? I mean, this is really a situation where the best Matt can do is put a band-aid on a gushing wound. Donating a headstone is little consolation. And the fact that it's Daredevil, not Matt Murdock, who comes to the grave shows this. Sure, there's an overcoat, but Daredevil's distinctive gloves are seen laying the flowers at Soames' final resting place. It's an apology and another futile act. He couldn't save Soames, nor could he get justice. At best, this is the equivalent of a lawyer not charging a fee for a massively lost case. And in the theme of showing and not telling, I'm glad that there was no speech from Daredevil to Soames. This isn't a lesson that can be summarized with something witty or poetic. You can't just sum this up with words. This is a loss that is stabbing right through the heart of the hero. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. This story really got to me. And going into it, I had very little expectation of it. And I got back a lot. It's low investment, high reward. It's the kind of story that we're going to be seeing more of. It's not clean cut. There were no full-on villains. There's no clear-cut hero. Not even Matt was in the right to meddle in the affair. As I mentioned, had Matt not shown up, Soames would have fried the wallet before the guards rushed in and probably flown away. Or suicide by cop. Maybe he would have even left the armor. Who knows? And that's the haunting thing about this story. It was basically a cluster of bad timing, misunderstood intentions, and nobody won. Michelini knocks it out of the park and gives us a noir tale before Daredevil is regarded as noir. It's dark and it's tragic. It's definitely an issue to track down not only for this awesome story, but for the backup. Dark secrets. By the same creative team, it basically gives us another breakdown of Daredevil's abilities, the brownstone, the billy club, so on. I'm not going to get into this because we've seen it. But the one thing that is added is a nice, awesome cutaway of the brownstone. And I gotta admit, I love cutaways. Somehow they render me into a drooling, staring mess every time. But again, something we've seen before and it doesn't add much to the other incarnations of these breakdowns. So I do recommend this issue highly. If you want to check it out, you can find it reprinted in Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 1, Trade Paperback, The Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus Hardcover, and Marvel Digital and Marvel Digital Unlimited. Definitely seek this one out and let me know what you think with an email. And speaking of emails, that's right, it's email time. Your words, Dave's responses. It's email time. And first up this week is a missive from Luke Giaconetti with the subject line marked for death. And Luke writes, Hey man, I wanted to drop you a quick line to let you know that I really enjoyed your shows which covered the stories collected in the Marked for Death trade paperback. These issues sounded like a lot of fun, but with the introduction and gradual increasing of the darker aspects which would define the character as he moved deeper into the 1980s. But these tales still seem to have their feet rooted in the 1970s, which is not a bad thing. I have a lot of love for the Iron Man and Power and Man and Iron Fist comics from this same era, and I suspect that these comics would hit that same sweet spot for me. So you can definitely chalk your coverage of these issues into inspiring me to find a copy of this collection. I've also learned quite a bit from these episodes. For instance, I never knew that Ben Yurik was such a major player this early in Daredevil's history, as I had always assumed that he was a more modern, read 2000's, addition. Similarly, I did not know that Daredevil and Black Widow were still palling around at this point, figuring that they canoodle together out west, but not in NYC. So, educational as well as fun. I wonder if Widow will make a cameo in Daredevil's upcoming Netflix series. One last thing, you mentioned your rapidly decaying Secret Wars Daredevil figure. I hear your pain on this one. My brother had this toy when we were kids, and even then I remember his paint being really lousy and his arms not being the same color as his torso. At this point, I think I have two of him in similarly terrible shape, which is just a shame. Not sure which is worse, Daredevil's bizarre paint or Dr. Octopus's incredibly fragile robot arms. You also briefly mentioned the Toy Biz Daredevil with the grappling hook launcher. I remember this figure being utterly hated at the time because of said launcher, including being lambasted in the pages of Wizard. If I remember right, it was a rendition of the red and black costume, right? Too bizarre. Looking forward to more. Thanks for the great show. Luke. Well, Luke, as for the mark-for-death trade and the sort of 70s to 80s transition, I think you kind of hit that nail on the head. The trade really mixes the feel of the 70s procedural cop shows, a bit of the 80s grit, and just a splash of normal, straightforward superhero action. So yeah, it's pretty much cut from the same cloth as Power Man and Iron Fist. And Power Man and Iron Fist will be making a full appearance relatively soon, so watch for that in an upcoming episode. As for Yurik, I was kind of under the same impression you were, or more accurately, I thought that he came in later in Miller's run. I also thought that he originated in Spider-Man, so not only was he organic to Daredevil, but he was also officially a long-standing supporting character. And it's funny that you mentioned Black Widow and Daredevil and if they will mention the relationship in the Netflix series or cameo. A while back, the guys over at Back to the Bins, Hi Paul Spataro, were talking back and forth about Marvel doing some street-level heroes like Daredevil. This is before the Netflix shows were announced and before this show, but it occurred to me that, wow, Daredevil kind of has an in for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because imagine Matt and Natasha having been lovers when she comes to him for help, or vice versa. It's not unreasonable, and I hope they do get ScarJo for at least a cameo. And yes, the Secret Wars figures are not known for being the hallmark of quality. I've never seen a Captain America that kept his red stripes or a Doctor Doom who didn't have the design on his chest rubbed off, which is kind of starting to sound like Lord's Royals. Either way, it's a sad state of affairs. But the DD figure at least had a rudimentary billy club and not a cannon. And yeah, that was totally aped in Wizard. Now, the first figure to answer the, the black and red question was Daredevil's traditional red costume with this face sculpt that made him look like he was just an old man in the duds. Toy Biz later released a variant with the black and red costume, which was a complete repaint of the original figure, and I mean only a repaint. That costume, if you remember, had plates that protruded from it, armored plates, but they just slapped some silver paint on his shoulders and called it good. Worst variant ever, except for US Agent, which was a repainted Captain America, which you would think would make sense, but they didn't even file down the chain mail. And of course, they also put Gambit's trench coat on the Punisher and released it as a new version. Toy Biz was going cheap on us. But awesome to hear from you, Luke, and I have this weird feeling we're going to be hearing from him again very soon. For the moment, we have W. Blaine Dollar with the subject line, $2,500 banner contest. He writes, hi Dave, or is it Javid? In regards to the $2,500 cash contest bannered on Daredevil 166, Uncanny X-Men, and more, I pulled out my DVD-ROM copy of Uncanny X-Men 137 to check out the Mysterious Contest. Readers were invited to answer a question specific to their age groups with multiple prizes, including a $2,500 grand prize in each age category. Question 1. Age 10 and under, who is your favorite Marvel superhero and why? Answer in 25 words or less. Question 2. Ages 11 to 14, who is your least favorite Marvel character and what can we do to improve him or her? Answer in 25 words or less. Question 3, age 15 and up, how should the Marvel Universe change to face the challenges of the 80s? Answer in 50 words or less. Prizes in each age group, one first prize of $2,500 cash, one second prize of $1,000 cash, one third prize of $500 cash, one hundred fourth prizes of a copy of the Origins of Marvel Comics autographed by Stan the Man himself, 250 fifth prizes of a one-year subscription to the Marvel comic of your choice. Of course, they wouldn't give prizes for these answers these days. They can be found all over the internet, though rarely in 25 words or less. No, Blaine, not in 25 words or less, that's for sure. And no, there are no prizes, especially nothing worth $2,500. I certainly haven't seen that return. But I'm glad you fired up the DVD-ROM, and I wish that I would thought about this. I wish I'd taken a look at my Hulk DVD-ROM to check it out. As soon as I read your email, I was like, oh, I could have had a V8. I have reference material for that, but I appreciate you filling in that blank. Of course, you can find Blaine on episodes 22 and 23 of this very show, which you should have already listened to, or over at Bureau42.com, where he does lots of shows. And then there is a return visit from Luke Giaconetti. Told you we'd hear from him again. This email subject line is Dr. Octopus and the Gladiator. Luke writes, Dave, just wanted to drop you a quick note about the last two episodes, 20 and 21, featuring Daredevil tangling with Dr. Octopus and Gladiator. I've liked Doc Ock since I first was exposed to him as a little kid, as a bad guy in the Incredible Hulk cartoon. The matchup of him and Hornhead is an interesting one, as Daredevil is almost out of his league against Doc's mechanical arms. It's a shame that Alfred Molina will not play Dr. Octopus again, as I thought he was one of the absolute best baddies in any Marvel film, MCU, or otherwise. Your coverage of Gladiator's return led to some good insight into a guy whom, from the few times I have seen him fighting Iron Man, seems to be a typical bad guy in a battlesuit. Addressing his mental illness puts a different spin on him as a character and as a nemesis. I'm definitely interested in hearing more about him. Given the fact that the identity has been used by others over the years, maybe Mark Wade will give us a new gladiator at some point? A question for you. With Daredevil back in the Marvel Cinematic Universe fold with the planned Netflix series and Black Widow already a major player therein, do you think that the Marvel brain trust might ever put the two of them back together as an item? With Wade's Daredevil using the power of positive thinking to lift himself out of the darkness, it makes sense to me to pair him up with someone who understands and knows what Matt goes through in his heroic identity. If you want to tell Devil May Care adventure stories, there's a lot of potential with Daredevil and Widow swinging through San Francisco. Really digging the show, can't wait to hear more, Luke. You know the weird thing about Dr. Octopus is that I really didn't like him as a kid. In fact, Alfred Molina and Spider-Man 2 were the very things that piqued my interest and made me take a second look. So Luke, you are speaking my language on Molina. As for Black Widow and Daredevil getting back together, I kind of addressed this a bit, but let me put more, uh, more precision into my answer here. If Matt and Natasha got back together, it would be very short-lived. It might be a couple of issues before they realize that they aren't the young, free couple that they were back in the San Francisco days. Natasha is more deeply entrenched in S.H.I.E.L.D., and Matt... Well, he's a bit more confident and content with himself as an individual unless defined by his romantic partners. It wouldn't be a train wreck. It would be really coming down to two adults looking at each other and finally saying, hey, this isn't going to work. And, you know, there's actually a good scene there. This could actually happen. Set it up with Natasha catching up with Matt in San Francisco, nostalgia flowing, and then they come down to this conclusion. I would read that. I mean, really, we should pitch this to Mark Waite, but he's probably already got it in the works. But good email, good email, and Luke can always be found over at the Two True Freaks network with his show Earth Destruction Directive covering giant Japanese monsters, robots, that kind of thing. And our final email is from Jason Sandberg with an email entitled, Feedback on episodes 17 through 21, Josie's Bar. Jason writes, Dave, a recent trip and a laptop upgrade put me behind schedule on your podcast. I'm pleased to report that I swung through episodes 17 to 21 this week while at work. Thank you and your fellow podcasters for giving the rest of us entertaining commentary while we're dashing through our workdays and commutes. I'm getting a kick out of your Google Street View project. The amount of show prep you're doing is evidence that you're having a blast creating this podcast. And thank you for explaining your thought process as you're researching plausible real-world locations for these Marvel Universe landmarks. I was hanging on every twist and turn as you were hunting through Manhattan alleys and side streets for Josie's Bar, and I agree. That's Josie's Bar. Jason wraps up by saying they can't do that on From Crisis to Crisis. Have a great weekend, Jason Sandberg. And you know, I really want to give you a hard time, Jason, about the show being portable, but I understand technology upgrades and a busy schedule. I'm just glad to hear a a few people giving approval on my Josie's Bar location. I half expected a lot of people to chime in with their own locations, which could be fun. So if you have an alternate location, let me know. I know you were giving a little friendly bit of ribbing to From Crisis to Crisis, but the fact is, having a superhero who lives in a real city leads to some fun map stuff And I do have a few more coming down the pike. All I'm saying is Kingpin is showing up. That one's going to prove to be fun. And actually, I think From Crisis to Crisis has done a really good job using Metropolis. Mike has a detailed map of Metropolis from the Mayfair game, so they have worked out the landmarks, which is also kind of just as fun as a real-world location. Unfortunately, the only Metropolis on Google Maps is Illinois. And that is a very small town. I've been there. And I'll confess, I was a little worried uh, going into a long read-through when I was really enjoying the pick issues here and there type of thing. And every time I sit down to do a new episode, I get more and more excited. Because I think not only what's in front of me, but also what's coming. And there's a lot of stuff coming down the pike, starting with next week. Well, I can sum up next week with one word. It's very easy. Electra. That's next week. This week, we're done. So I'll be back in seven short days. Until then, remember, justice may be blind but it can see in the dark
1: he is the one that call a man that fear never far away whenever everything
0: You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast, on Twitter with the username at Dave and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I am Dave, and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast.